Amen. Good morning, everybody. Kiddos, you guys are dismissed to Children's Church. Uh, everyone else, if you have your Bibles, go with me to Hebrews 11. Um, as we're going there, just a couple real quick announcements. Um, first, we've got some new members to welcome. They went through the membership class, um, and the elders read through the stuff, talked to them, voted on them. So here are our new Branch Church members. Uh, Mike Moran. Where's Mike at? There he is. Um, Andrew Wilson, Carlton Hicks, finally. Uh, McKaylee Cannington, Elise. Where's Elise? Can I go ahead and call you Taylor? Is that too soon? No? Did I curse it? Uh, Elise Gloverkin and Garrett Taylor. Thank you guys so much for joining with us. If you want more information about membership, our next class will be in a couple weeks. Um, we can talk at the next step table about what that would look like and uh, go from there. Uh, other, last thing before we get started, I just want to throw this out there. So last week, my wife and I were at a pastor's retreat, um, and then last Tuesday and Wednesday, I was at a conference uh, with a group of pastors, and listening to them talk about the issues in their church and the issues in their congregation and all the things that those guys have had to go through and lead through through COVID, I'm just really grateful for you guys. Um, y'all are a really easy congregation to pastor uh, and just it just welt up a lot of love for you. So thank you for being so great. I really do appreciate, and I love being your pastor. Sound good? All right, say all that said because I'm about to rake you over the coals. So Hebrews 11, just kidding, this is, a, this is one of my favorite sermons. Um, I, I, selfishly, I picked Hebrews 4, this section, Hebrews 11. I'm just fired up. So, so as I was thinking about this, um, it reminded me a couple months ago, I actually broke down. I finally broke down and bought something that I've wanted for a really long time, but just kind of kept pushing it off for different reasons. But I broke down, I got myself a plasma screen TV. Just kidding. I got one of those ancestry tests, right, where you like spit in the tube. And, and here's what I was holding off for, because the government already has my fingerprints and facial recognition. Now they have my DNA, so I can get framed for any murder. So I just throw this on the table so everyone knows I didn't murder anyone, right? If anything happens, if you read anything in the paper, I was framed, all right? They have all my information. It's not me. Uh, but I finally broke down, spit in the tube, sent it off, and, and it came back. I was so frustrated because it came back and it told me that I'm, guess what? European. Like, I'm an average-looking white dude. I know I'm European. I didn't, but what I wanted to know was my ancestors. I wanted to know who they were, the stories, the history, what did they do for a living, what made them who they are, how did we get to America. I wanted to know all the history of my ancestors, and instead, I paid 100 bucks, spit in a tube, waited eight weeks for them to tell me I'm white. Like, got it. Got that part figured out. But what, what got me thinking about that is I'm just, I'm, I love history, I love the stories of history, and I love the ancestors, but, but what we get to do as we go through Hebrews 11 is to read and study and remember our actual ancestors. Because you've got to understand, in the biblical times, the greatest bond was not between father-son, that wasn't between mother-daughter, it wasn't between um, father and mother. The greatest bond, the most significant bond you had was between brother and sister. And so when Jesus came and created this new family, that this is my family, this is the kingdom, leave your mother, your father, your brother, sister, and join on with me. He was creating the true family, the church of God. So that means then everyone that we study through Hebrews 11 are our brothers and sisters. 
Like, this is our ancestry. This is part of our pedigree. This is our family that we get to read and study and try to emulate their faith. And so that just has me fired up about this because uh, I, I just love leadership. I love action. Lord willing, if I can ever finish my master's degree, I, my, my plan is next summer to start the doctorate. And I'm going to do it in applied theology because I love theology but I love theology that's applied. And the whole point of Hebrews chapter 11 is a theology applied. What does it look like for faith to be doing, to be active, to be working? So with all that said, Hebrews 11, uh, we're going to read 4 through 7. That's what we're going to study. But I'm going to read 1 through 3 and then 4 through 7 just to give a framework for where we are. So Hebrews 11, let's pick it up in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he commended him as having pleased God. If you underline, take notes, verse 6 is where we're going to camp out this morning. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So let us pray this morning. Father, would you open up our hearts and our minds to your word? Would you illuminate the truths of text to us this morning? Father, would we leave this room changed? Would we take our faith to the next level, whatever that looks like for us? And will we emulate the faith that our ancestors showed us, that our brothers and sisters in the Lord showed us? God, we're grateful for this word. We're grateful for this church that we can study together, the freedom that we have to do that. So, Father, we ask this morning, would you speak? It's your name we pray. Amen. Now, last week, Dylan taught one through three and really just tried to define what faith is. Now that made it a little easier because look with me at verse 1, gives a pretty succinct definition that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. So Dylan took that in the text and came up with this definition, be confident that God will fulfill his promises and we are to order our lives out of that conviction of that truth. That is what faith is. So be confident of the promises and live our life out of that conviction. Or another way would be John Piper says, faith looks to the future with great assurance that God will keep his promises. That God will keep his promises. Now, Dylan kind of brought up this idea, and we'll kind of paint this picture as we go every week, uh, but faith is that cliche thing. And I don't mean to offend anyone, but, but I would, I would yeah, I would bet. I'm not a gamble man, but I would bet if you're a female in this room, you own an article of clothing, a coffee cup, or jewelry with the word faith on it somewhere. Am I right? If you don't, just Hannah Perkins doesn't? All right. See, I'm not a gambling man. Let me, let me rephrase this. If you're over the age of 25, 
Do you own this? See, I'm not seeing no heads there. That's what I should have bet on. The splits are better on that odds. But, so we hear this word faith all the time. But what we have here is two massive categories, right? We have the sovereignty of God, the beautifulness of God, the character of God. And then over on this side, we have the depravity of man, who we are, wretched human beings. And this linchpin right in the middle is faith. And so even though we are, have heard about it, we have a theoretical definition of it, we've ha- maybe been in some time, some seasons in our life where we've had to really exercise our faith, this is of most importance for us. We have to press in on what faith is. So, so basing off of the Scripture and Dylan's definition last week, I just want to add one more caveat here. Because if you go to the dictionary and look up the word faith— if you Google it, that's probably what most of us do. If you Google Webster's Dictionary, faith is going to come up as a noun, as a person, place, or thing, an object, a subject. That faith is a noun. Faith is something you study, you look at, you understand. But I want us to implore that faith is at the same time a noun and a verb. It is a thing and is an action. So every time we look, study, read, look at these examples of faith, yes, we must understand it biblically and theologically, but we must do something with it. And, and this is, cannot be more evident in the book of James. James 2.22, you see that faith was active along with his works. So faith is not just a thing, just a noun, but it is a verb. It is active. And James goes on to say in verse 26, for the body apart from the spirit is dead. So also faith apart from works is dead. So we have to see this. We have to understand that I don't want to preach sermons. Our preaching team is not going to work through Hebrews 11 if there's no action that's going to be taking place. If we're just going to grow in our biblical knowledge. Oh, I can tell you all these facts about Abel. I can tell you about Abraham. I can tell you about David. I can tell you about all these different Old Testament characters. Without actually doing anything with what we've learned, we're not growing in faith. We're growing in knowledge. Those are two massive distinctions. As knowledge is important, but faith is also a verb. Faith is active. We do something with what we have learned. So as we're going through, we have to see that as a massive caveat when we define faith. So I mentioned when I was reading, let's go back to verse 6, because right in the middle, like a glorious Oreo, you have examples, the filling examples. And so the cream filling, sorry, I'm hungry, the cream filling in verse 6 is really the subject of what we want to talk about. And without faith, verse 6, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. So right here we have this massive definition that the way the text breaks out, verse 4, 5, and 7, all reaffirm this definition of faith that pleases God. And it gives us that very simply. The first part is faith is we accept the existence of God. So the first step of faith that pleases Him is that we must accept that He exists. We must accept that he exists. The second is that we believe that he rewards those who diligently seek him. That our future will be better because of our faith in him. That the promises of God, as Piper said, will come true. What God has promised in the future sense will happen. And we have to believe that. That is what faith is. And so we have to stop and just kind of remind ourselves what's happening here. Why is the preacher, the author of Hebrews, writing this entire chapter to the people? 
Because they're losing faith. There's a hole in their tire, and it's leaking. And why is it leaking? Because suffering is coming up. Persecution is coming up. They've gone through this first wave of persecution, and they know that martyrdom is coming quickly for them. That persecution is not going to go away. It's just going to continue to ramp up. So what does faith do in the moment of hardship? And we could ask ourselves this, coming down to 2020, what does faith do in the midst of hardship? Do we press in or do we fall back? And that's going to determine a lot about what our faith really looks like. Because again, faith is not just a thing, but it is an action and we must press in. So this original audience needed to hear this as an encouragement. Hey, press in, lean in, remember the stories of your ancestors and model after their faith. And I would implore that that's the same thing for us. Press in, lean in, let's learn from our ancestors so that we can grow in our faith. Because if we have true faith, man, Delonica will never look the same. If we live out this message, the world will never look the same. If the church as a whole actually walks by faith and does what God has asked us to do, man, we're, it's going to be said of us what was said about the early disciples in Acts. Here comes those Christians that turn the world upside down. That's what's going to be said of us. So, so we have to stop and pause and look at these ancestors to understand what's happening. So let's first look at verse 4, because the story of Abel will show us that faith is that accepts the existence of God. The story of Enoch will show us that faith leads us to believe he rewards those who seek him. And then when we get to Noah, it's going to be the culmination of the two. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip back to Genesis chapter 4. So leave your, leave your thumb in Hebrews, go back to Genesis 4, and we're going to look at Genesis 5. We'll kind of be flipping back and forth. Because we first see, verse 4, by faith, Abel offered a sacrifice to God more acceptable than Cain, to which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So to understand this story of Cain and Abel and where this comes from, uh, just real quickly, Genesis 4, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. Remember, Genesis 4, right after Genesis 3, which was the fall. So this is the Adam and Eve that God created, right? This is at the beginning of time. Now, Adam and Eve, excuse me, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord regarded for Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do desire, excuse me, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. And how did Cain respond to this? Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. I'm not my brother's keeper. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. 
So this whole debacle really comes down to one question between Cain and Abel. Why was Cain's sacrifice not good? Why did the Lord not regard it? In Abel's, it was. So we see from the beginning that Cain was a farmer of the ground, and Abel was a farmer of animals. So you would think, man, like they made a sacrifice, right? Cain brought what he had. Abel brought what he had. Shouldn't that have been good enough? But for this, we have to go back to Genesis 3, the fall of man. When Adam and Eve sinned, uh, what did God do? What was his original response? He was looking for them, and when he found them, they, they knew that they were naked. God said, how, how did you know? That's when he knew, obviously he knew. That's when he addressed that sin had come into the world, and he clothed them with animal skins. Have you all caught this? He clothed them with animal skins, which means that God made the first initial sacrifice for their sins, that he slaughtered an animal so to atone for their sin, but also to give them clothing. And then we see this really fleshed out through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, through the law of God, what we've been talking about with this sacrificial system that Jesus is better than. So the, the sacrificial system has always been, God designed it all the way back in Genesis 3. And we saw this in Hebrews 9.22. Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So we see now with these lenses on the issue that's really going on, right? That Abel brought a sacrifice of blood, that he sacrificed an animal to atone for his sins, while Cain just brought some carrots. Now, sacrifices were the same, right? They both brought what they had, but the Lord did not regard it because not what he had commanded Abel or Cain to do. What he had commanded was blood must be spilt for the atonement of sins, so then we start to have to ask the question, if the first definition of faith is that we exist or that we admit that God exists, that faith has to start in the existence of God, by Cain bringing the wrong sacrifice, could you make the point that that was admitting that he didn't actually think that God was God? That even though God had commanded this, even though God had modeled this, even God had taught this, he said, I'm still going to do it my way. I'm still going to do it my way. I know that you said to do this, but I don't actually think that you're God, so I'm going to do it my way. And we see the proof in the pudding here. Look at verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, you will not be accepted. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And from this, God pleading with him, hey, sin is crouching. Sin is going to destroy you. Sin is going to eat your lunch. Come do it my way. What does Cain decide to do? He goes out and murders his brother. He says, no, I'm going to do things my way. So we see here, right out the gate, that Cain's sin of not making the correct sacrifices and Cain's sin that led to the murder of his brother were complete denial of God's existence as a holy, sovereign God. So his sacrifices were not counted as righteousness, were not faith because he was just going through the motions. That he did just enough to look like he was following after God, but the heart of Cain was not about God's existence, it was about himself. It was not about the glorification of God. It was about himself. It was not about anything else. It was not faith. It was what do I have to do to get out of here? 
But we see Abel is quite the opposite. We see him make the true sacrifice of animal. We see him do exactly what God has called him to do. We see the forgiveness of sin offered because of the faith that Abel had doing what God asked him to do. And it comes down simply to the existence. If we look again at verse 6, faith is impossible. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And the greatest way to show that we believe he exists is we do what he says. Now think about this. In your own life, if you do not believe, now maybe there's some rule followers in here, this will not line up to you. But if you do not believe that someone is, actually has authority over you, if you don't believe that authority exists, does it stop you from breaking their rules? Of course not. I mean, I'll just, if we have Barney Five come out here after and try to arrest me under citizen's arrest because I did something wrong, I'm going to get in my truck, I'm going to leave. But if you have a Lumpkin County Sheriff show up and say, hey, here's, this, here's what you have committed, I'm going to have to take you in, yes, sir, I apologize, I will do whatever you say. Citizen's arrest versus legal arrest, two totally different things. Why? Because the authority, it's there. I believe that Lumpkin County has the authority to do that. I don't believe that some citizen is going to arrest me. In the same way, we see this existence of authority. Abel believed in the authority that God had, while Cain didn't. So, we have to ask ourselves a question. Yes, sure, we believe that God exists. And James would tell us, even the demons believe that and shudder. But do we actually believe that God has all authority, all power, all glory, or do we try to share that with something else? So true faith shows us that we believe and shows the world that we believe that God exists. Faith that he exists leads to behavior and action that proves that. Faith that he doesn't exist leads to action and behavior to prove that. So right now, in this moment, what does your actions lead people to believe about your faith? That he exists or that he doesn't? And again, Cain was doing the right thing. So when you start thinking through this, if your mind naturally gifts to, well, I go to church once a week and I get to family groups whenever I can, and if I'm feeling a little springy, I'll throw some uh, extra coin in the offering cup. But what does that actually prove? Do you believe in the faith of God and that controls everything? You lay down your life, your authority, your power, your control, all of it because God exists and God is real. The second example that we see is in verse 5. So we see the first part of the definition that faith believes that God exists, but then we see the second part is that faith believes that he rewards those who diligently seek him, and we see this played out in the life of Enoch. Look with me at verse 5, Hebrews 11:5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Which I just love that because that means people were looking for him. Right? Like there was an ambler out for Enoch. Like, where's he at? Hadn't seen him in three days. Oh, God took him. You're crazy. Where's he at? Right? Like, people were looking for him. Nope, he, he's gone. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. 
Now, this story of Enoch is really fascinating, really, because he's not mentioned that much in the Bible. So if you go back to Genesis 5, this is really one of the few times that he was mentioned, and it's really short and brief. So Genesis 5, 21 through 24, is not even really about the story of his life, but factually, as they're going through genealogy, here's what it says. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So that's what we know. He walked with God. He took his faith serious and pursued God, trusting that, having faith that, believing that God had a big plan for him, that as long as he sought him diligently, that he would be rewarded. One of my favorite quotes about this comes from Al Mohler. He puts it this way, faith honors God and God honors faith. It's as simple as that. Our faith should honor God. And if that's true, God will honor our faith. And we see this because it only happens one other time in Scripture with Elijah. That homeboy was just whoop, gone. And then, of course, we see it with Jesus Christ in the resurrection. But what was so important about the life of Enoch? What was so important about his faith? What was he doing in this walking with God that really set him apart? And Warren Wiersbe puts it this way. Enoch had been walking with God for so many years that his transfer to heaven was not even an interruption. Enoch had been practicing Colossians 3 centuries before Paul wrote the words, keep seeking things above. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things of this earth. So faith believing that reward is coming means that Enoch's eyes were always on eternity. Enoch's eyes were always on glory with Christ. Enoch's eyes were always up above the fray that's going on amongst our lives. That he believed truly that to be with Jesus was the reward. He honestly believed to live as Christ, to die as gain. If you have me here, God, I'm going to be working for glorification of you. But if you want to go ahead and call me home, I'm fine with that. Enoch was walking. He believed that. But Jude also shows us a different view of Enoch and his boldness of what walking with really looked like. And here's what it says, Jude verses 14 through 16. It was also these about Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all to convict all the ungodly in their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So Enoch had some step in his, pep in his step, didn't he? He was not afraid to confront sin. He was not afraid to confront evil. He was not confra- afraid to confront those with sinful desires, the loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So here we see that Enoch's eyes were so much on the prize, so much set on who God is and what he's done for mankind that he did not tolerate sin around him. This just wasn't even a conversation for him. 
wasn't even a thought for Enoch that as he was walking with God, he's confronting sin where he goes by faith. Because he believed that by faith that the eternity set for him was greater than the present reality for him. Now, we have to really ask ourselves that question. Do we really believe, is our faith strong enough that we truly believe the future of our reality, being with Christ forever, is greater than our current reality? That that reward that he has for us is greater than our present, because this is what he wants us to see. This is the faith that Enoch had. He walked with God, but he also spoke boldly for God. Faith that is both a noun and a verb, an object, a subject, and an action will be rewarded by God. And do we believe that? And then lastly, we get to see these two massive puzzle pieces put together in verse 7 through Noah. Third, we see Noah's faith shows a belief in God's existence and a belief that God rewards those who diligently seek him. So let us look at verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God's concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The story of Noah combines these two for us. And this is a story that most of us are probably familiar with. Even if you don't really have a background in church, you've heard this, you've watched uh, Evan Almighty, you've kind of figured out what this would look like. But here's what Kent Hughes says about it. Faith hears God's word and believes with profound certainty that makes the promise present so that the believer actually sees it and rests everything on God. Here's what existence and reward actually looks like in the presence of faith is that you do ridiculous, crazy things because God told you to. That you do ridiculous, crazy things simply because you believe God exists and God rewards faith. If you do these things, God rewards them. So there's just a few things we need to see. How did he believe the existence of God? First, he listened to God concerning events yet unseen, yet unseen. No one had ever seen rain like this, ever. Not even like flood territory rain, but the region that they were in, rain just did not happen that frequently. So for him to say it's going to rain a lot, like, man, that's crazy. Hey, it's going to flood the earth. That's insane, Noah. I know you get drunk sometimes. Are you drunk right now? I mean, that was the attitude that was being said about Noah. But we have to really ask ourselves these questions because with all the news media and social media pushing narratives and facts, who are we listening to? Because Noah could really have listened to the world around him. Man, maybe I am crazy. Maybe I shouldn't really believe that God actually truly exists in the way that he says he does because this sounds crazy. And we fall into that trap even more so. Noah probably had... 10, 15, maybe 20 friends calling him crazy. Job had three or four or five friends calling him crazy. For for us as the church to believe what we believe in our current climate, we have millions calling us crazy. But that's what faith is. That's how faith perseveres. We work, we toil, we rest because God has instructed us to. 
We don't walk around with a spirit of anxiety. We don't walk around with a spirit of fear. We walk around with the truth that God has given us, even if they are unseen. But second, we see that he did it out of reverent fear. He knew the true character and nature of God, and his response was out of that reverent fear for who he was. He operated from knowing that God could kill him in the moment. He operated knowing that God was a holy, righteous, perfect God. You do not tell God no for long. And no one knew this. No one walked in obedience to that. And finally, his faith outweighed his critics. You know how long it took Noah to build this? 120 years. 120, I mean, that just blows my mind. One, because none of us are going to live to see 120 years. Spoiler alert. 120 years. Now, I, I have the attention span of a gnat, right? Like 12 seconds is a long time for me. 12 minutes, I'm crocking with it. 12 hours, maybe not so much. 120 days, forget about it. 120 years. That takes faith, family. That takes persistent, ongoing faith to continue to work, work, work based on what God had told you. Now listen, as we read this, we don't want to idolize Noah. We want to think through the lenses of his faith. Faith equals longevity. True faith equals longevity. It means we hear the voice of God. We believe his existence. We believe that what he has us doing matters, that it will be rewarded, and we work and we walk, and we keep going. But if I'm honest, my faith is not that way. If I'm honest, my faith is pretty easily deteriorated by unmet expectations or different results. I mean, you just think about this for a second. Noah's building something that he's never actually built before in his life. You know why? Because who needs a boat that big? It was doing something that's going to lead to hardship, frustration, struggles, all of that stuff. So for us, we have things so easy that the first time hardship pops up, we fall on our knees as they were martyrs. Oh God, why have you forgotten me? It's like, bro, you've been doing this for two weeks. Noah did it for 120 years. But that, that's me. God, I'm on fire. I'll do this for you until the first hardship comes. Or reality until I get bored. Because that goes back to denying the existence that God actually exists. That what he told me to do matters as an importance and I need to continue walking in faith. And this is what he believed. And we see the fruit of this. Noah believed and understood that God rewards those who diligently seek him day after day, walk and operate in faith. And how do we see this lived out? Noah and his family were spared, the only ones, the only ones. Everyone else was mocking, everyone else was belittling. For 120 years, Noah had to put up with that. But his faith in who God was was greater. Have you guys seen Evan Almighty? Okay, if you haven't, you should go watch it. It's just, there's some parts in it, whatever. It is a comical parody of this. And one of my favorite moments is when the, it's not an actual flood, the dam busts, and everyone is running to get on the ark. 
And Steve Carell, who is Noah in this, Evan Almighty, is welcoming everyone on. But we know that's not the true story. That God had called everyone to repentance, but only one man's faith stuck out, and that was Noah. That we must, as a church, walk by faith. We will be rewarded. Now, I know, let me just address this, maybe asterisk, real elephant in the room. Maybe you guys are thinking this, maybe you're not. Um, why was Noah rewarded by faith, but Abel was murdered? So if we believe that faith will be rewarded, if we seek him diligently, we will be rewarded. Why did Noah and his family get spared, but Abel got destroyed? And as we get later on into chapter 11, we're going to see that some defeated death, some defeated their enemies, but some were sawn in two, and some were fed to lions. How is that being rewarded? And I just need to press in, and we need to press in, what is the ultimate reward? To stay on this earth or to walk in glory with King Jesus? That is the ultimate reward. So wouldn't it not be more of a reward for God to call them home early? Would it not be more of a reward for Abel to go ahead and go into the presence of God than Noah have to live on this earth for hundreds of years? What is our true, actual reward? To live as Christ, to die as gain. That is our reward, and we have to believe that. We have to walk in that by faith. So we see here, based on Hebrews 11.6, that what is this faith that pleases God? We believe in His existence, and we believe that we will be rewarded for our faith. Faith honors God. God honors faith. So now it's time for us to lean in and press in and ask ourselves the hard questions. Do you believe in the existence of God? And I'm not asking for lip service right now. I'm asking you to examine your life. Do you believe the existence of God by how you walk in faith? Not a noun, but a verb. Does your life reflect that you believe in the authority and the power and the supremacy of God? Or does it look like that we believe in the supremacy, the power, and the authority of ourselves? We're placing our faith in someone, and it's either God or it's us. It's either God or the culture. It's either God or my friends and family. So do we actually believe in the existence of God that changes the way that we live? And the second question is, do we believe that a reward is coming for our faith? Do we believe that God truly rewards the ones that he loves? the ones that have faith, the ones that walk in righteousness, do we believe that the reward is coming for us? And we see this clearly in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Is eternity our ultimate prize? Is that our ultimate reward? To be in the presence of God forever. Do we actually believe that what we are doing, how we are stepping out in faith, is going to be rewarded even though we might not ever see it? Even though we might not actually taste that reward, do we believe that it's going to be rewarded? That's one thing that we'll cover tonight in the family reunion as we talk about parenting, is that we might not ever see the fruits, the reward of faithful, God-honoring parenting forever. 
It might be after I'm dead and gone that my children and my grandchildren do something incredible. They walk in faith for the glory of God. I might not ever see it, but do we believe that that reward is coming, that God honors those who walk in faith? So this week, let us look at Abel. And as a dichotomy, let us look at Cain. Let us look at Enoch. Let us look at Noah and examine our faith compared to our ancestors, our heroes, and ask the hard questions, are we walking in faith? Because if we are, it will be rewarded. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the examples that you give us. We're grateful that you reach out to us, that you love us, that you pursue us.